The kids have been dismissed. The graduates are settling back into their pews. Let's pray before we open up to our text for our sermon this morning. Ask for God's help. Would you pray with me once again? Father, we, each and every one, submit ourselves to you and your word now. Would you please speak to us? Would you enable me to just be a clear messenger and not be in the way of your word? Let your Holy Spirit go before your word and soften our hearts and make us receptive to it. Please mold us and make us the people you would have us to be now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for praying with me. Okay, so here we are. We're in Isaiah chapter 1. We are at the doorway in the hall listening in as God the Father is beginning to have a father-son chat with his people, Israel. Now, we introduced the book at length last week, so I'm not going to do a lot of introductory work this week. We're going to dive in, uh, in part because I want to make sure we have plenty of time for the Lord's Supper. I do have a couple of introductory notes I do need to mention so that we're all oriented and know what's going on. We're starting today, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2. This is the first message that's recorded in the book of Isaiah, but it's helpful to know that Isaiah isn't organized in a strictly chronological way. So the first five chapters of Isaiah are several messages compiled together, and then chapter 6, we read about Isaiah's call to ministry. Well, these messages in chapters 1 through 5 most likely happened after the events of chapter 6. They are assembled here at the beginning of the book to act as sort of a preface or an introduction. It sets the tone. It um, brings us up to speed on the general situation in Israel and of what Isaiah was ministering in and what he was saying to Israel. I just wanted to get that out there so that when we hit chapter 6, you guys weren't confused thinking, oh, he's just now called into ministry? He's been already giving messages for five chapters. Isaiah is more about conveying the, the, the meaning of Isaiah's ministry than it is a strict chronological record of his ministry. So we begin in verse 2. We're going to read through verse 9, and you're going to see that this particular message is broken into two parts that are pretty easily distinguished from each other. The first part is the Lord presenting his case. He's introducing his case against his children basically saying, my children have rebelled against me. Now, that's where we enter into Isaiah. Verse 2, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. So here the Lord, it's as if he has gathered the heavens and the earth to be his witnesses to the case he is about to present against his children that they have broken the covenant in several ways. You'll see this throughout prophetic scripture where heavens and earth are brought sort of as witnesses against God's people for having broke the covenant. So here he begins to state his case. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. So we see in the beginning already that even though God is an attentive father, his children have rebelled against him. 
That language there, children I have reared and brought up, that's very attentive language. That's very hands-on. I have carefully nurtured this people in bringing them up. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. They have yanked themselves away from me. They have turned away from me, rejected my authority, rejected my words to them. Now, he doesn't go into detail about what this rebellion looks like yet. We're going to see a lot of details throughout the book of Isaiah, but right now he's just generally stating his case that they are rebellious, and even animals are more loyal to their masters than God's carefully raised children are to him. That's what he says in verse 3. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib or its master's manger, where to go to get food. Even animals have enough common sense to have some level of respect and loyalty to their masters, but not my people. They act like they don't even know who I am. They don't understand at all. That's how rebellious they are. And then as we get into verse 4, the perspective shifts from the Lord speaking to Isaiah speaking. He says, ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. That means they're heavy with it, like a bunch of wet towels. They're heavy. They're soaked with iniquity. Iniquity is an interesting term. It has to do with the character of the person. So it's not just that their deeds are evil, their character is evil. They, they are full and heavy and dripping with evil intentions and evil motivations and evil desires. Oh, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord They have despised the Holy One of Israel. And here's the bottom line, the last part of verse 4. They are utterly estranged. They're utterly estranged from their Lord. When our kids were little and we needed to teach them to tell the truth, as every parent must teach their children, when we talked about lies and we tried to instill in them, son, daughter, is so... We didn't call them that. Daughter, son... It is so important that you tell your parents the truth. There's many reasons why, and we we would try to teach them all the reasons why it was important to tell the truth, but one that we always emphasized is if you lie to us, it makes us like strangers to you. It makes it where we don't really know you anymore. It makes it where you're presenting a persona to us and a truth to us that isn't real, and we don't know that, and so it's like we're not able to connect as father and son, as, as mother and son, as father and daughter, mother and daughter. It makes it kind of like we're strangers, and we don't want that. We love you. We want to be close. We want to know you. You can always tell us the truth. This is sort of what Israel had done. In all their rebellion, they had damaged their relationship with their Lord, their father, so deeply that they had made themselves like strangers. That's what it means to be estranged. They had turned themselves into strangers. They should have been close to their father. They should have been responsive to their father. They should have been loyal to their father. But instead, they were like strangers toward him. This happens, as many of us know all too well, in our relationships with children in this world. Their children can so damage their relationship with their parents that their parents have to start treating them like strangers. They have to say, no, I can't trust you in my home. No, I can't trust you with money. No, I can't trust what you're saying. You, you are to me in many ways like a stranger because you have damaged our relationship so much 
with your rebellion. And this is what Israel had done in their relationship with their father. You can hear in his voice the pain of it. So the Lord here has introduced his case against his children. It's plain and clear. They have rebelled against their father. That's the first part of the message. The second part comes next. The prophet now pleads with Israel to turn back to him. Verse 5, he begins, verses 5 and 6. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. So in other words, he said, why do you keep on going this way, Israel? Can't you see that you are like a sick and injured body that has not been treated? And if you would come back to your father, he would treat you. He would heal you. I remember in school, one of my, my classmates, I didn't know him real well, but I had a couple of classes with him, and he was one of the rougher kids at school um, in, in his actions and how he talked, how he carried himself, but also just the way he, he looked, the clothes he wore. He often just seemed uncared for, uh, clothes unwashed, same clothes over and over again, those sorts of things, shoes worn out. And, and not new shoes. You just got the sense that he wasn't really being cared for all that well at home. Uh, I remember one class day he came and he showed me his hand and he had this horrific gash in the palm of his hand and it was just cut open and it was clearly infected and oozy and nasty and it just looked so painful. And he said, yeah, the other day, it wasn't even yesterday, it was a couple days ago, I was messing around out in our backyard, and I was on the roof of a tin shed in the backyard, and I was just sort of sliding down it, and a rusty nail head caught my my palm and just just ripped right into it. Now, you know, at the time, I just thought, that is gross, and that looks like it really hurts, put it away, I don't want to see it anymore. But, you know, now looking back as an adult, I think, where were his parents to treat that wound? Why, Why was this kid, I think this was middle school, why was this kid just left like that? To, and I guess he, I mean, he kept on through school, so I mean, I guess the infection didn't set in and it didn't kill him or anything, but it had been days untreated. That's what Isaiah is saying to God's people. Look at the condition that you are in. You are all beat up, sick from head to toe, injured, and untreated. And yet you have a father who loves you. Why do you persist? Why will you continue to rebel? Can't you see that it's killing you? He goes on in verse 7, a different angle as he pleads with them. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. So this is either another um, image that he's using to get the point across that they're not doing well, or now he's being literal and they're in a state of having been conquered because that is part of their story. We're, we're not really sure exactly when this message takes place to know for sure. I tend to think that this is literal now. Either way, the point remains the same. He says, why do you persist in your rebellion? You're like a sick and injured body that's untreated. You're like a land that has been conquered and invaded 
and inhabited now by foreign enemies. So for us as Americans, this would be as if a radical Islamic group arose and actually conquered our country and took up residence in the White House. And it was theirs now, their flag flying over the top. That's what Isaiah is pointing out. Look how destroyed you all are because of your rebellion. Why do you persist? And then he goes on in verse 8 into a pretty unfamiliar image, but an effective one once we know what it means. He says, and the daughter of Zion, Zion is what they would call Jerusalem where the temple was, but it, it came to kind of mean symbolically the homeland of God's people and the promised land. He says, and the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. So to us, it's not, it's not readily apparent what he's talking about, but I did a little research. I didn't just know about this, but I did some research. And so apparently in those agricultural days back then, when it was really heavy harvest time, rather than traveling from home out to where the harvest was taking place and back every day to save time and travel, they would build these little lean-to temporary shelters out there in the fields, just little booths, little, little lodges. They weren't meant to be permanent. It was just something you could sleep in overnight, one, two nights to get the work done. And you can imagine after the, the course of all this harvest was completed, the state of these temporary shelters, the wind would have blown it apart. It would have been just sort of fallen down. Isaiah is saying, that's what you have become. You who were God's kingdom, you know, God's mighty nation. Now you're like these booths out in the fields. You're, you're a besieged city. You're in tatters. You're destroyed. So here we are in the hallway, listening in to this father-son chat. The father is having with ancient Israel. You can hear the, the hurt in his voice, the love, the frustration, but also the, the wrath tinged in his voice. He says to Israel, I, I have brought you up. With my own two hands, I've cared for you. And you don't even have the loyalty to me that an animal would have to his master. And it's not just an isolated incident or anything. You are weighed down with rebellion against me. It comes from your heart. Why do you go on like this? Can't you see how sick you are? Can't you see how you're hurting? Can't you see how desolate you are? And then we get to the final verse, verse 9. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Now, even if you're not real familiar with the Bible, I bet you've heard of Sodom and Gomorrah. This, by this point in Scripture, has become just a catchphrase, meaning the most wicked of cities, and cities that have been completely eradicated and annihilated by the Lord because of their wickedness. When God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah for their sin and wickedness, he did it completely. He left nothing standing that could grow back into a new Sodom. No remaining citizens who could band together and build a new Gomorrah. He made sure the job was complete. So Isaiah is saying, we have become so wicked that if it wasn't for God's grace, leaving us a few survivors, we would be just like Sodom and Gomorrah, over, annihilated, 
But God has left us a few survivors, a few remaining people. That word could be translated a remnant, which is a rich idea throughout the Bible. You'll encounter it a lot. So Isaiah, Isaiah, Elias likes to play risk, and we have played risk quite a bit. We don't play a lot because to play a full game of risk takes almost literally a, a whole half of a day. But we have played risk, and he's very good at risk. I thought I was pretty good at risk, but he is better. And so he beats me. Now, if you're not familiar with risk, it's a, a playing board, and on the board is a map of the world. And you get a bunch of little plastic pieces that represent armies. And you're trying to maneuver your armies around this world to conquer the world. So when Elias and I play, he inevitably closes me in and boxes me out and and whittles me down until I have just a small handful of these little plastic armies left. It'll be his turn. He could easily end it, but he doesn't. He leaves me these couple of little measly armies not out of mercy and grace, but because he enjoys the act of destroying me in risk. He's like a cat with a mouse. That he doesn't really want to kill the mouse. He wants to play with it. He wants to toy with it. But those few armies that he leaves me, that's a remnant. That's the biblical idea of a remnant. Now, God, for other motivations, not cruelty like Elias's, but out of grace and faithfulness to his covenant, always leaves a remnant of his people throughout their history. He, he, he doesn't fully eradicate them. So throughout the course of just all this avalanche of consequences of their rebellion, he doesn't allow them to be fully crushed and annihilated. Throughout the course of them being conquered, even exiled from the promised land, he's still faithful. He doesn't allow them to be fully wiped out. They eventually come back to the promised land, and there's still a period of time where they're, just, they're still struggling with rebellion against him, but he never fully annihilates them. He always makes sure that there is a remnant left of them, all the way up through time until Jesus Christ, the Messiah, arrives. Now, our passage ends with verse 9, and we're going to close on this same note that verse 9 closes on. So the message concludes with a hint of hope. God hasn't destroyed us. He's left some survivors. Now we can zoom ahead in in time to now, and we know the fulfillment of that hope is Jesus Christ. Israel was God's disobedient son. Jesus is God's obedient son. In his obedience, Jesus has made it possible for anyone who believes in him to become God's child. Now, I had at one point in my sermon preparation three pages of scriptures tracing the line from these survivors throughout the rest of Isaiah and the Old Testament along to Jesus to where he was the fulfillment of that remnant. And then he opened his arms up great and big and pulled in all the Gentiles, all the non-Jews, to be God's children in himself. But I felt like that would then become like a lengthy lecture, and there was no way y'all would hang with me through that much Scripture reading. But I do have a couple that I'll share with you from the New Testament end of that. First, Philippians 2.8. And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient. 
obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then John 1, 12 through 13. But to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. See, we are primarily in our church, we were not from a a Jewish background. And we can tend to think that Christianity is this freestanding thing, kind of disconnected from the history of Israel, but it's not at all. We, that remnant that God made was pointing ahead to what God was going to do through Jesus Christ in bringing in a new people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, including us Gentile believers. A new people in Jesus. So Jesus, the obedient son, kind of absorbed all of us into himself. And so when God looks at you, if you are a Christian, he sees Jesus' perfect obedience. That's the record that has been accounted to us. Perfect obedience in Jesus Christ. We now, because of God's grace through Jesus, because of his death on the cross, get to be God's children. So we have a twofold application of this for us that I want to point out before we turn to the table. The first is for non-Christians. Anyone who is not a Christian who may be listening to this. The message for you is believe in Jesus and become a child of God. Don't live your life as a spiritual orphan any longer. Jesus has made a way for you to be God's child, to be adopted by God the Father as his child. He created you for himself to live as his son close to him. Your sin separates you, but Jesus bridges that gap. He paid for that sin on the cross so that you could be forgiven and cleaned up and reconciled to him and brought back into relationship with him. And you need to respond by entrusting yourself to that, by believing in Jesus, by turning away from your former life of being a spiritual orphan, going your own way, doing your own thing, to accepting the authority of God the Father through Jesus the Son as your Lord. The second application is for Christians listening, and it's pretty simple. Looking back at Israel's rebellion, sort of like our older brother in some ways, Let's remember who we are as children of God and not repeat their mistakes. Let us not rebel against the Father the way Israel did. Let's be obedient children. Let's remember who we are. We are God's children. All through the New Testament, if you trace this idea, this was part of my three pages of Scripture as well. If you trace this idea of being children of God in the New Testament, it is very often used, I almost want to say most often used, but I actually I haven't proved that out, so that may not be the case. But it's very often is presented in the New Testament that we are God's children as a source of motivation for holy, obedient living. So you don't become God's child by being obedient enough. You, obedience doesn't lead to salvation, but salvation does lead to obedience. So you can't obey your way in to God saying, okay, you're obedient enough, I'll adopt you through Jesus as my son, as my daughter. But once he has adopted you, that's who you are now. You're God's child now, and you get to live like it. So when you act in a sinful manner, you're acting against your nature now. That's not who you are anymore as a Christian. Who you are is an obedient son like Jesus Christ. That's your nature now. 
So let's remember who we are. As we turn to the Lord's Supper, let's recommit ourselves to live as God's children. Let's recommit ourselves to obedience to God, not to earn our salvation, but because he's given it to us and he enables us to. We get to live this way now. I narrowed my scriptures down in this point to just one, 1 Peter 1, 14 through 15. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So the question for us as we transition to the Lord's Supper is, am I living in light of the fact that I am a child of God? Does my day-to-day living outside of this church sanctuary look different from my peers, my coworkers, my neighbors who are not God's children? Because I am God's child. Do I carry this family resemblance of holiness with me in my everyday life? Is there anything in my life that I have embraced and accepted that is, in fact, actually an act of rebellion against the Father? Do I have any ongoing sin that I need to repent of and let go of and turn away from? Through Jesus Christ, we have so much mercy, so much grace, so much forgiveness, so much love, so much cleansing, so much care from God the Father. He loves you. If you are in Jesus Christ, he loves you with the same love that he loves Jesus the Son. We get welcomed into that Son relationship with the Father. It's awesome. But it does have implications for how we are to live. We do also need to obey. But we obey out of joy. We want to please our Father. We want to honor our Father. We don't want to be like Israel was in Isaiah chapter 1. So we're going to turn to the table now. I'll pray before we do. I just have a few words of instruction for us. You do not need to be a member of Doolin's Grove Church to receive the, the cup and the bread, but you do need to be a Christian. And what that means is that you, not that you at one point perhaps were baptized or at one point were connected to church. What it means to be a Christian is that you are trusting in Jesus as your Savior and you are following Jesus as your Lord. That's what Christians are. That's what Christians do. Now, if you have some doubt as to whether you are a Christian, you think, perhaps I'm just associated with Christ or I I like Jesus, but maybe I'm not actually been saved by Jesus, then I think perhaps you should let these elements pass and let's talk about it after the service. But if you are a Christian, your only remaining step is just to prayerfully ask the Lord to search your heart, reveal any sin that is in there, and help you to repent and turn from it, to free you from it. We want to come around this and reconnect with the grace that is ours, but also our determination to live for Jesus Christ. So let me pray, and then I'll invite our deacons to come forward, and we'll begin. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you for the message you gave the prophet Isaiah Lord, would you help us not to be rebellious, 
Would you help us to be obedient and responsive to you and loyal to you and faithful to you? Thank you for letting us be your children through Jesus Christ. We confess that we didn't earn it and we don't deserve it, but we rejoice in it and we're so grateful for it. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. Lord, would you now work in each of our hearts, be revealing to us, is there any sin, any sin pattern in us that we need to, to turn away from in obedience to you? Would you please enable us to do that? Because these things are not easy for us to turn away from. Would you please give us the Holy Spirit power, free us from anything that tangles us up in rebellion and disobedience. Lord, if there's anyone in here who should not partake of these things because of sin in their life or because they're not right with you through Jesus Christ, would you just make that evident to them and work in their hearts so that they could be brought in and reconciled to you? Or let this be a joyful time, a serious time of reflection and closeness to you. In Jesus' name, amen.